Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that the Haunted UK podcast is now on coffee. If you love the show and want more content, such as bite-sized bonus episodes, horror and paranormal movie reviews, chances to get your hands on exclusive Haunted UK podcast merch courtesy of CDS Print and Design, as well as a free Haunted UK podcast sticker and much more, then get yourself over to Coffee and sign up to donate £3 per month. That's KO-FI and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Coffee. Why not buy us one? Season 2 of the Haunted UK podcast is well underway and listening figures are amazing. A huge thank you to all of you who regularly tune in and listen to the episodes. Episode 1 was the Venetian Palace Haunting, a great story of a group of people who witnessed a multitude of paranormal events in the Palazzo Albrizzi in Venice. As part of that episode, I issued a poll and asked for all of you out there to name your favourite horror or paranormal movie, and I would try to write a special episode about the winner. So, here it is. On the 4th of June 1982, the movie Poltergeist was released to both critical and commercial acclaim, earning a total of $121 million against a budget of just $10 million. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, six Saturn Awards and a British BAFTA amongst its many accolades. The story followed the Freeling family, who had moved into a new house on a large planned development project. Stephen Freeling was a top real estate developer working for the company who were building the estate. His wife Diane was a stay-at-home mum who ran the house and looked after their three children, Dana, 16 years old, Robbie, 8 years old and Carol Ann, 5 years old. After an incident early in the movie involving Carol Ann who was watching and talking to a TV with only static on screen, the paranormal events begin to rack up in both intensity and terror. At first, the family are entertained by the strange forces at work in their home. Furniture begins to move on its own, culminating in one scene where the dining table chairs are impossibly balanced on the table in the time frame of just a few seconds, all in complete silence. After Diane shows her husband Stephen some of the amazing feats that the phenomenon in their house can accomplish, like invisibly pushing Caroline across the kitchen floor, they all decide to stay quiet until they can find out what they're dealing with. Not long after, a huge storm hits the area and a particularly creepy tree suddenly develops a life of its own, with one of its branches crashing through a window into Robbie's room and dragging him outside. In a panic, the family rush to help Robbie and save him, but leave Carol Ann inside the house, where she is drawn into a mysterious portal of energy. The portal quickly vanishes, taking Carol Ann to the other side. Not aware of what has happened, Stephen, Diane, Dana and Robbie frantically search for Carol Ann, only to hear her voice coming through the television. Time passes and the family fall into depression, with Stephen looking especially ill. He misses work and joins his family as they try to understand what has happened to Carol Ann and where she could be. 
a team of paranormal investigators are brought in to see if they can help, and they are completely blown away with the level of activity which is present in the house. They conclude that there is a poltergeist manifestation at work, and the only hope they have of trying to rid the family of this phenomenon is to bring in a spiritual medium who they have worked well with in the past. Stephen and Diane decide to send both Dana and Robbie to stay with relatives while they work with the paranormal investigators to try and locate and bring back Carol Ann. In the meantime, Stephen has been offered a promotion by his boss, who takes him to the top of a nearby hill to look over the development to discuss its future expansion. Whilst up there, Stephen learns that the site of the whole current project, including his house, sits on a former cemetery but he is assured that all of the graves were moved and reburied. The paranormal investigators are joined by spiritual medium Tangina Barrows at the Freeling House. She determines that the spirits haunting the house have attached themselves to Caroline's life force, and because they are not at rest, they will continue to manifest themselves in different forms. She also picks up on one particular entity which she calls the Beast, she feels that this spirit is evil and using Caroline's presence to stop others from crossing over and being at peace. They locate the entrance to the portal, which is in the closet where Caroline disappeared, and find that the exit is in the living room ceiling. After successfully locating Caroline, Tangina sends Diane into the portal to bring her back. They both follow a rope which was threaded through the portal previously and make it back through to the house and back to their normal dimension, falling from the ceiling covered in ectoplasmic residue. Tangina declares that the house is now clean, and after wishing the family well, she leaves along with the other investigators. A short time later, the Freeling family decide that they will leave their house and relocate. With Dana out of the house on a date, Stephen tells Diane that he's going to drop into his office to quickly finish up some loose ends and he'll be back soon. With Diane, Robbie and Caroline left in the house, the Beast makes one last attempt to try to take Caroline again by forcefully removing Diane from the house and dragging her into the unfinished outdoor swimming pool. With the pool being just barely a hole in the ground, and with the rain pouring down, Diane fights to try and crawl out as the pool fills with muddy water. It's now that the true horror and realisation of what the developers have really done makes itself known. As Diane is fighting to get out of the pool, the coffins and bodies from the cemetery which the whole estate has been built on start to come to the surface. Diane manages to get out of the pool and get the children out of the house, just as Stephen and his boss arrive. As Stephen bears witness to the madness unfolding before him, he confronts his boss, telling him that he lied all along and only moved the gravestones and not the bodies. Dana then turns up at the house from her date and also sees the horror unfolding. The family quickly get into their car and leave, making their way to a motel just as their house collapses into itself and is consumed by the portal. The movie was a huge smash hit and still stands up today. It also spawned two sequels, Poltergeist 2 The Other Side and Poltergeist 3. But how did the original come into being? What happened during filming? And what about the curse which surrounds the whole trilogy? In all honesty, Poltergeist was Steven Spielberg's baby, 
and he even co-wrote the screenplay alongside Michael Gray and Mark Victor. But this movie was meant to be a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind and not a ghost story. Spielberg had been asked by the movie studio if he was interested in coming back for a sequel to Close Encounters and although he wasn't too interested in making sequels, he did have an idea for a follow-up. Initially entitled Night Skies, Spielberg decided to approach Toby Hooper, who directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and also Salem's Lot, which was adapted from the Stephen King novel of the same name. Spielberg was a fan, but was knocked back by Hooper who didn't want to direct an alien-type movie. He was more interested in horror and thriller. So why didn't Spielberg direct this himself? Well, some say he did, partially. But under his contract obligations at the time, he could only serve as a writer and producer while he was in the pre-production stage of another movie, which turned out to be E.T. Toby Hooper had always wanted to direct a paranormal ghost story and threw a ton of ideas at Spielberg, who loved the idea. He then began work on the screenplay. So who really did direct the movie? Well, Toby Hooper is the credited director, but some cast members and crew would offer a different opinion. Some would suggest that the scenes which involved the family were directed by Spielberg, leaving the horror and thriller scenes to Hooper. But this is all really a subject that has blurred lines. Spielberg even wrote an open letter to Toby Hooper congratulating him on doing such a great job directing the movie, and despite the constant arguments which still rumble on today, it's Toby Hooper's name on the director's credit, so we'll stick with him. Now, let's get into the subject of the curse that allegedly haunts this movie series. Many things went wrong on set and with members of the cast and crew. Deaths were even attributed to the curse, and there are a few of them. On set, lights would fail, cast and crew would have strange and uncomfortable feelings, and there are two particular scenes in the first movie that were scary anyway, but what happened behind the scenes was even worse. In the first scene, Oliver Robbins, who played eight-year-old Robbie, is being attacked by a particularly frightening clown. The special effects crew built the clown so that it would literally look like it came to life and then put its hands around Oliver's neck and begin to strangle him. In reality, the mechanism in the clown malfunctioned, causing the hands to really begin to clamp down around his neck. Whilst filming the scene, Everybody was extremely impressed with Oliver's realistic-looking reactions to what the clown was trying to do to him, until Steven Spielberg suddenly became aware that he was turning blue. Spielberg and other crew members jumped in and managed to pry the mechanism back open, stopping Oliver Robbins from losing consciousness and possibly saving his life. The second iconic scene, and the rumoured cause for the beginning of the curse in the first place, was the scene near the end of the movie where Jo Beth Williams, who played Diane Freeling, was fighting to get back out of the pool as it filled with muddy water. As she was desperately trying to clamber out of the mud bath, the skeletons of the bodies who had been left in there by developers began to surface to the top. In the scene, it looked like the bodies were trying to stop her from getting out and saving her children. It was filmed over a number of days, with Jo Beth Williams constantly cold and wet and surrounded by dozens and dozens of skeletons. What the crew didn't tell Jo Beth was that the skeletons were in fact real. 
As amazing as it sounds, the special effects department found that buying skeletons of real dead people was cheaper than buying imitation ones. These skeletons were allegedly bought from a university who would have used them for medical purposes, and this is a practice that has been used on a number of movies in the past. But Jo Beth Williams had no idea that she was spending days in muddy water with the skeletal remains of real dead human beings. Jo Beth also experienced strange phenomena at the apartment that had been hired for her as filming progressed. She recalled that on more than one occasion, she would leave the apartment to go to set and everything would seem fine. When she returned, every single picture that was hanging on the walls of the apartment was crooked. Jo Beth would straighten them, leave for filming, return, and again, every picture would be crooked. As filming wrapped and the movie was released, the curse would allegedly begin to take lives as well. Dominique Dunn, who played 16-year-old Dana Freeling, would suffer an extremely tragic and premature end to her life. In reality, she was in her early 20s while she was filming Poltergeist, and after the movie's release, she had been cast in the sci-fi miniseries V. On the 30th of October 1982, Dominique was at her Hollywood home with fellow V cast member David Packer. They were rehearsing scenes in preparation for filming when she took a phone call from a friend. During the phone call, ex-boyfriend John Sweeney had the telephone operator interrupt the conversation so that he could speak to her. She commented to her friend that she would get him off the phone so that they could continue. Around 10 minutes later, Dominique's doorbell rang and standing in the porch was John Sweeney. Their relationship had soured and ended because of Sweeney's jealousy and controlling and violent behaviour towards Dominique, and it seemed from his point of view that if he couldn't have her, then nobody could. David Packer heard an intense argument, then a number of disturbing noises coming from the front of the house, so decided to call the police and report the incident. After more noises, then silence. Packer went out the rear of the house and made his way around the front to find John Sweeney standing over the motionless body of Dominique Dunn. Sweeney held his arms up in the air as police arrived and admitted to strangling Dominique. She was taken to hospital where she remained on life support until doctors confirmed that due to her brain being starved of oxygen during the attack, she would never regain consciousness. The difficult decision was taken by her family to take her off life support and she passed away on the 4th of November 1982. The curse would continue to take lives when Lou Perryman, who played a small role in the movie as a construction worker, would also come to an horrific end when he was attacked and killed in his own home by axe-wielding Seth Christopher Tatum, who had been on the run from police. Richard Lawson, who played Ryan, one of the paranormal investigators, had an extremely lucky escape in 1992. After boarding Flight 405, which was heading to Cleveland, word was beginning to spread throughout the passengers of an unexplained bad feeling. As a flight attendant walked past Lawson, she recognised him and began chatting. After a few minutes, she secured a seat for him in first class and moved him to a different section of the plane an action that would save his life. Flight 405 crashed on takeoff after failing to gain enough lift. 
It veered across the runway, hitting various obstructions before crashing into Flushing Bay. Of the 51 passengers and crew that were on board, 27 died. Lawson found out in the aftermath that he would have almost certainly have died had the flight attendant not moved him just before takeoff. Coincidence or curse? James Kahn, who was tasked with writing the book to accompany the movie, also had a strange experience. He recalled that whilst writing the line, Lightning strike the sky, a rogue bolt of lightning hit his building, knocking out the lights, but strangely, all of the video games in his apartment started up and began playing. According to legend, the curse began to make its way across the two sequels that were also made. In Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, the protagonist was a character called Kane. It was explained that Kane was a preacher who was the leader of a cult whose cavern was located directly underneath the Freeling's home from the first Poltergeist movie. Kane was played by Julian Beck, who shortly died after filming was completed. He had been suffering from stomach cancer and was very ill throughout production of the movie. Another death that has been sometimes linked to the curse is that of Will Sampson, who played Native American shaman Taylor, also in Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Apparently, disturbances were quite common on the set of the second movie, and being uncomfortable with the fact that the skeletons of real people were used in the first movie, he took it upon himself to perform an exorcism and a blessing on the film set. Will Sampson was a Muscogee Indian, and these beliefs and ceremonies were popular in his culture. He unfortunately died after the movie's release of a condition which resulted in him losing weight rapidly, leading to heart and lung problems. He died of complications after undergoing surgery. And last but not least, the tragic death of Heather O'Rourke, who played Caroline. Heather had been misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease at a very early age, when in fact she had a bowel defect. She was given steroid injections whilst filming Poltergeist 3, which resulted in her appearance looking like she gained weight, especially in her face. After filming had wrapped in summer 1987, it was slated for a 1988 summer release target. But in January of 1988... Heather O'Rourke's condition became worse and she began to deteriorate at an alarming rate. She died on the 1st of February 1988 from septic shock which had complicated and accelerated her already misdiagnosed condition. In 2015, the franchise was rebooted with the Gil Keenan-directed Poltergeist. It seemed that the curse had even found its way onto this production as well. Again, Lighting and equipment malfunctions were a regular thing. But curiously, this only occurred on a specific plot of land where filming was taking place. It seemed like there was a dead zone as far as wireless and GPS signals were concerned. When sending up drones, the operators would report a complete GPS blackout. But once the units had cleared the area, the signal would come back strong and clear. Gil Keenan even stated that the spirit of a woman in black would follow him from the rented house where he was staying to the film set and then back again. This continued throughout the entire production but stopped when filming wrapped and Gil went back to Los Angeles. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this bonus episode. If this has been something you've enjoyed, then why not drop me an email or get in touch with the show on Instagram and let me know if this is something you'd like to hear more of. On to a few shout-outs now, and the first goes to all of you. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsors, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for another season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Another shout-out goes to some new great podcasts I've been listening to over the last few weeks. They are Red Handed, Case File, The Black Tapes, Odd Encounters and The Battersea Poltergeist. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a strange story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on our season finale's Listener Stories episodes. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hells Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.